Okay, well in our service today we have so far heard about God's mercy, we've sung about God's mercy, we've tasted and touched these signs of God's mercy, and actually during our sermon series for the past five weeks we've learned a lot about God's mercy. We've traced the theme of sacrifice through the scriptures, through the Old Testament into the New, we've seen how God has sent substitutes all the way through to stand in the place of his rebellious people and to bear the punishment for sin. And we've seen how all of those different sacrifices along the way have pointed forward to the ultimate perfect sacrifice of Jesus. That is where we see God's mercy most of all. In a ransom of incalculable cost to God himself. And that raises a question. God's mercy raises a question which Paul Paul is about to answer in Romans 12. What is a reasonable, rational response to such mercy? Now, I'm guessing not everyone here will be fully convinced that Christian belief is reasonable or trustworthy. And if that's you, you're probably not at the point of asking about the response. That's fine. We're glad that you're here. If that is you, there are plenty of people around this room who would love to chat to you afterwards, I'm sure, about the reasons that they think Christian belief is reasonable, rational, and how they have experienced it to be true. So do stay around for coffee afterwards. Please don't feel embarrassed to ask those questions if that's you. Keep listening as well, because you'll get a clearer idea of what it would look like if you were to accept Christ. But now that question again. What is a reasonable, rational response to God's mercy? And here's the answer Paul gives in Romans 12. Verses 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there is actually only one reasonable response to the all-out mercy of God. And that is to sacrifice our whole lives to him, to offer our whole selves in his service. But why another sacrifice? Surely Jesus has paid for every sin of every person who will ever believe in him once and for all at the cross. Surely we don't need another sacrifice for sin. And that's true, we don't. But the sacrifice God desires from us now is different. He desires our whole lives 
surrendered to his service, obedient to his will. And that is actually his right, because he is our creator and our sustainer. There wouldn't be a universe here, never mind people to discover it and enjoy it, if God hadn't made it, if he didn't uphold it second by second. It belongs to him, and so do we. But how much more does God deserve our wholehearted love and grateful obedience when he has single-handedly saved us from eternal wrath? Not only that, he's raised us up if we believe in Jesus. He's adopted us into his family. That's where we will belong forever, inheriting a new creation with Jesus. This is the greatest love story and the greatest rags to riches story ever told, all rolled into one. And it all comes 100% from God and 0% from us. All we bring is our sin. So how can we not respond to God's mercy by surrendering all that we are to him? There is no other rational response. And this, Paul says, is our true and proper worship. We often only apply the word worship to singing or maybe to our gatherings together. And worship is not less than that, but it is so much more. So we're going to explore what that living sacrifice, that true worship, looks like. How does Paul clarify it for us in these verses? Firstly, true worship is body and soul 24-7. True worship is body and soul 24-7. It is serving God with our whole selves, our bodies and our Minds. You see that in verse 1? Paul says, offer your bodies to God, which includes all that we do in them every day. Not just on Sundays, but seven days a week. And in verse 2, he makes clear that we can only offer our bodies acceptably when our minds are transformed, trained by God's word and his spirit, to rightly discern God's will. So living sacrifice or true worship is serving God with our bodies and our minds 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A Christian shell on an otherwise secular life is not worship. Turning up to church on Sunday but forgetting about God the rest of the week is not worship. Saying the right words when you're with other Christians but never spending time with God when you're alone is not worship. Living your life with the same ambitions as your unbelieving friends and neighbours with little concern for their salvation or your own growth in godliness is not worship. And feeling warm feelings towards God in our hearts, but refusing to surrender our bodies in active obedience to him, is not worship. 
True worship recognizes that God has the sole right to define our identity. He has the right, the sole right to direct our careers, our relationships, even our sex lives. He has the sole right to command our use of time, talents, and money. True worship is body and soul, 24-7. Where might you be holding something back? For me, it's often where my own material comfort is concerned. I, I often struggle with having to accept a lower standard of living than most of my peers because of being in Christian ministry, because of the sacrifices we've made for that, and because of the, the call that Jesus makes to all of us to be generous, to seek first his kingdom with our finances. And as I see the holidays or the meals or out and fancy restaurants or new clothes that other people enjoy far more frequently than I do, I easily want to pull back from serving God wholeheartedly. I want to be less generous. I want to keep something for myself. And as I prepare to leave MRC in August, I want to look for a church and a community to serve in that doesn't offend my middle-class prejudices. I want a church that satisfies my dreams of living in the countryside. And at times, I want those things more than I want to go where God might actually be leading me. I want my will to be done, not his. I want to seek first my comfort and not his kingdom. I wonder what those struggles might be for you. Let me say that we will always have these struggles as long as we don't totally feel overwhelmed by God's mercy. Paul implies that in verse 1, that God's stupendous, all-out mercy is the only true and proper and sufficient motive for complete surrender to God's will. The only proper and sufficient motive. And however much we feel unmoved by God's mercy or indifferent to it, to that same extent, we will hold ourselves back from all of life worship. And to the extent that we're not overwhelmed by gratitude for his mercy, we need to pray. Our greatest need is to plead with God for a fresher, deeper, more all-consuming understanding of his mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that something that you pray for, for yourself, for your family? Or are our prayers mostly to do with practical needs and the ordinary struggles of daily life in a fallen world? Now, of course, God cares about those things. He wants us to bring us those needs because he is our heavenly father. But our greatest need is to know the depths of his mercy again and again and again. 
then everything else will fall into perspective. Then we will find the faith to trust him in all of our struggles. Then we will have joy, a joy which no struggle or pain or sorrow can take away. And most importantly, then our hearts will naturally respond to God as they should, with wholehearted, willing, grateful service to the one who gave it all for us. So do you plead with God to know his mercy more deeply? Maybe that should be our first prayer every morning. True worship is body and soul 24-7. And it flows naturally from knowing God's mercy. Secondly, True worship is collective. True worship is collective. Not an individual project, but a collective one for the whole church. Do you see in verse 1 that Paul says, offer your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. Many bodies, but one sacrifice. So the sacrifice that pleases God is the collective offering of the whole church, which is most meaningfully expressed in the life of a local church, like MRC. So true worship is a joint project. We can't do it on our own. Paul goes on to spell this out more later in chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, when he explains that we are one body with many parts, the body of Christ, no less, And Christ has given different gifts to each of us so that we can serve him and strengthen the church as a whole. Prophesying, not quite sure what Paul means by that. Teaching, serving in practical ways, encouraging each other, giving generously of our time or money, leading, administering, showing mercy. All these things are essential if the church as a whole is to fulfill its worship to God as a living sacrifice. And that's not an exhaustive list by any stretch. Paul goes on to list a whole load of ways that we can build one another up in the rest of Romans 12 to 15 and in his other letters. And that includes rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. So simply being there as a shoulder to cry on or to buy someone a celebratory pint is part of how we can be a living sacrifice. That's something we can all do, isn't it? I wonder what are the ways that you most naturally feel able to help and to encourage your brothers and sisters? What are the things that you already do, perhaps? That's another good way of of looking at it. Do them with all of your heart. And don't be discouraged because they seem small or unimpressive. It's still needed because true worship is collective. All of us have a part to play. And that's no less true for our third point. True worship is word and spirit led. True worship is word and spirit led. So I wonder if you see in verse 2 that true worship depends on a transformed mind. 
we are in constant danger of being conformed to the world around us. Lies about our identity, or where happiness is found, or whom we should serve, or a whole host of other things, they are constantly bombarding us every day. It's in the news, in reviews, in the stories we read or watch, or adverts and the songs we listen to. It's in our sinful natures, which seize upon perfectly good things that God has made and twist them into idols, looking to them for security or happiness that only God can give. And to the extent that we are not actively resisting that pull of the world, we are being conformed to it. Like a a swimmer who will be swept away in the current if they just kind of lie there on their back floating. To the extent that we are resisting the warnings and encouragements of the Holy Spirit, we are going backwards, not forwards. Paul's dilemma here doesn't leave any neutral ground. We are either being conformed or we are being transformed. But how is it that we come to discern God's will and approve it and therefore live our lives by it? How does that happen? Through word and spirit. To be more precise, our minds are renewed as God's spirit acts through God's word to transform our whole perception of reality. Word and spirit together reorient us away from self and towards God. They teach us what is pleasing to him. In other words, our minds cannot be transformed without the Bible. And the the Bible won't work unless we plead with God to let his spirit give us understanding. And again, this is a joint project. So, yes, on the one hand, it is vitally important that we do read the Bible for ourselves if we have it in our own language, which we do. To do so would be like skipping meals because you can't be bothered to cook. You might get by because your mum or your spouse or a kind housemate do you a hot meal once a day. But if that's all you eat, you're soon going to be weak and malnourished. And it's the same with, with worship. Our worship will probably be weaker and more anemic if we never feed ourselves with God's word. But you'll remember that in the rest of chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, Paul was saying there are other people in the church with teaching gifts, for example, and gifts of encouragement. He also goes on in verse, chapter 15, verse 14, to say this, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So Christian worship was never meant to be just about me and my Bible. If we are to grow in understanding of God's will, we need each other. If we are to please him by surrendering to him, we need each other. We need to bring the Bible to bear on each other's lives and to pray for each other that it would be effective. So we need the elders who have been entrusted with a a greater responsibility to preach and to teach. 
We need the Sunday sermon. That is part of how God wants us to know his will and be transformed. And we need to open up the word together in smaller groups. Not just formal settings like home group or women's Bible study. But any time you get together with a brother or sister to talk about life. However young in the faith you feel, however small your knowledge of the Bible feels, we all have our favorite verses, don't we? We all have those verses through which God has spoken powerfully at one time or another. And you don't need to be a Bible scholar to share that with someone else. You don't need to be a prayer warrior to pray that that simple truth would encourage them. As Paul says, we are competent to instruct each other. We can bring the word to bear on each other's lives so that our minds are renewed. Not just the pastors and elders that do that. But it does rely on us going deep in relationship. I wonder, is there, is there at least one other person in the church who you can and do share your deep struggles or doubts or fears with? Perhaps whatever way you feel you are most being conformed to the world, or maybe you don't even see it and you need someone to point that out. Do you have such a person? If not, can I encourage you to to pray that God would bring such a person into your life and to seek them out. We can't just expect them to come to us. Sometimes that happens, often it doesn't. We have to show some willingness to invest in a relationship ourselves for it to, to happen, to materialize, to become deep. And the more we can be brave and make ourselves vulnerable by saying to someone, I am really struggling the more likely other people are to reciprocate and open up to us. Because you're not the only person in this church who struggles with sin or with a particular sin and who feels themselves being conformed to the world. You are not alone. You're not a uniquely bad Christian who is going to shock everyone else and we're going to cast you out of church membership. No. Even the elders have not finished the battle with sin yet, not by a long way. And if we give that impression, we're doing you a disservice and someone needs to warn us. So let's not undervalue the Bible or God's spirit as the essential means of renewing our minds, teaching us his will. And let's value all the forms in which God's word is available to us on the pages in our laps, in the voice of Christ through preaching, on one another's lips as we instruct and encourage each other. And let's be brave, let's be vulnerable, let's go deep in relationship so that we can bring God's word to bear if more effectively on each other's lives. If MRC is to truly worship God as a living sacrifice more and more, we need the word and the spirit and each other.
finally, to finish with a, an encouragement, I hope, true worship is a privilege. True worship is a privilege. To offer ourselves wholly to God is a holy privilege. It may seem like an impossible demand, and it is when we don't keep God's mercy in view. But with God's mercy in view and with his spirit in us, it is a privilege. Why is that? Well, firstly, it's because we don't need to earn anything. Our sacrificial service to God is simply a grateful response to his, his mercy. And if that's not already clear, I say again that Christ has done everything needed to make us right with God. So we could not be more loved by the Father than we are now if we believe in Christ. We don't need to earn anything from him, and so we can surrender ourselves in joyful sacrifice. There isn't a pass mark or a, a quota of obedience that we need to reach in order to be accepted. God knows that we will still struggle with sin this side of heaven. And I think that's what Romans 7 is about, if I've understood it. But so long as we keep coming to him with a, a humble, a sincere heart that wants to please him, he loves us. He couldn't love us more. And we do not have to earn a thing. We can serve free from guilt, free from insecurity. That's one reason why this kind of worship is a privilege. But secondly, finally, offering ourselves to God is a holy privilege because we... Christians, uniquely of all people, can please him. No one else on earth can please him, because everything that does not come from faith is sin, as Paul says in Romans 14.23. Only where there is faith can an action be pleasing to God. But we can please him, because we have become his children through faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you see in 12 verse 1 that our sacrifice can be pleasing to God. And again in verse 2, God's will is pleasing to him. So the logic is the more our lives are conformed to his will, the more pleased he is by it. And for some of us who have come from religions where God is remote or unpredictable, Maybe that is a surprise. Maybe even, you know, if you're a Christian, you sometimes wonder, is God really pleased with me? Is our devotion faltering as it is? Is that really important to him? You might ask, surely if our, our status before him depends so completely on Jesus' work, well, does he really take pleasure in us at all? Does he, does he, is he pleased with me in my own right? Well, I think we need to make a distinction here between God's love for his people, which is constant and unwavering, and God's pleasure in his people, which Paul seems to be suggesting is different. We can please God, or we can grieve him, Depending on our obedience, Ephesians 4 verse 30 says we can grieve the Holy Spirit by our sin. 
And I think it works like the parent-child relationship at its best. Now, my love for my daughter Clara is imperfect. It doesn't match up to God's love. But nevertheless, I love her roughly the same, whether she is being delightfully obedient or infuriatingly stubborn and naughty. My love for her doesn't waver because she is my daughter. But I can be more or less pleased with her. When she obeys me at supper time by turning the TV off quickly and coming to the table without a fuss, I am delighted. When she drags her feet and then complains ungratefully because of what I've cooked, in a sense, I am grieved. (laughs) And my pleasure in her changes in response to her actions, even though my love remains constant. And I think it's like that with God. He is actually pleased when we surrender ourselves more wholeheartedly to his will. And our experience of his pleasure grows. It is as if we sense he is smiling upon us. Our efforts might be so stumbling that they look a bit like a five-year-old's drawing of a flower. Kind of scribbly and messy and bizarrely colored. You're not really sure if it's a bramble rather than a flower. It's a long way short of the perfect beauty of the real thing. But I am delighted when Clara brings me a drawing like that because of the love that stands behind it, her love for me. And I am delighted by the progress I see as her drawings get slowly better over time. And in a similar way, God the Father is genuinely pleased with us for our own sakes when we surrender ourselves more to him. Your heavenly father actually takes pleasure in you. To look at it from another angle, in Old Testament times, the smell of Israel's sacrifices at the tabernacle and the temple were like a pleasing aroma to God when rightly offered. And our sacrificial service is the same. Maybe you love the smell of bacon wafting through the house in the morning, at breakfast. Or maybe you love the scent of a roast dinner washing over you as you open the front door when you get back from church. And in a similar way, when we surrender ourselves to do God's will, it is as if he breathes deep and closes his eyes and a satisfied smile spreads over his face. Isn't it wonderful to know that we can please God. Isn't it wonderful to know that our service genuinely matters to him? And doesn't that bring great dignity to every part of our lives when we can offer each of them in a way that is pleasing to God? Whether that's your maths homework or your spreadsheet at work or washing the dishes, all of it can be done in a way that pleases God when we let it be shaped by his will, when we are moved by gratitude for his mercy. Worshipping God is a privilege. Whole of life worship is a privilege. Don't you want to surrender yourself more 
to this God, this good and merciful God. Let's take a moment in quiet and I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good, merciful God who delights in the faltering obedience of your children. And we pray again, would you overwhelm our hearts with your mercy and help us as a church to help one another offer ourselves more completely in your service. Amen.